Well, good morning. Quiet down, knock it off. No, I'm just kidding. That's a great sound. I love to hear you guys chatter. Uh, and then I like to hear you stop. <laughs> uh, I don't know about you. I'm a little weary this morning. It was a long day yesterday. I know some, many of you participated in the uh, color run. And then uh, a lot of you, I saw a lot of you at uh, uh, City Fest yesterday, which was great. And... Um, uh, so, yeah, uh, that was a great day, and uh, I, for one, am fatigued. But, uh, so I brought snacks for us this morning. I got a loaf of bread down here, but we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, let's just pray, and let's thank the Lord for this time and for the sustenance it is for our spiritual life. So let's thank Him for that. Father, it's good to be in the house of the Lord. It's good to be with your people, our family, our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we recognize this is by your grace and your mercy. None of us was smart enough to figure this out. None of us researched and figured out uh, what you have done. But by your grace, you came to our aid. You became our Savior. By your grace, Father, you drew us to yourself. Because in and of ourselves, we would have gone the other way continually. So we thank you for drawing us. We thank you for the privilege of being your children. We thank you for the joy of having peace with God through Jesus. Uh, Lord, as we go to your word now, let this be an act of worship where we continually and persistently set you up as the, as the, the foremost in our minds. This is an act of worship, not an exercise in peripheral learning. But Father, we lay our hearts open to you and we ask that we would see you for who you are and understand your redemptive plan and understand your love for us in a new and a fresh way. May we see ourselves as your children and come boldly to the Father to learn. Holy Spirit, help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'd open your Bibles to John John chapter 6, we're doing all 72 verses this morning. We don't advertise these things in advance. I just want to make sure you get your money's worth this morning. So, <clears throat> Sometimes being um, a pastor of a larger church, I'll call Bethel a larger church. I'm still getting used to the fact that that's the case, but it is. But sometimes being a pastor of a larger church in uh, a town the size of Fairbanks uh, can cause me to feel like a more visible person than I might like to be. Um, it's always, you know, flattering and nice to be recognized, you know, in Fred Meyer or uh, around town or whatever, but uh, sometimes I can feel a, a little bit exposed and I am tempted to just hide or I wish I could disguise a little better. So I'm thinking of growing my hair out, you know, <laughs> get your thoughts on that. Um, it's not going to work, I don't think. Um, even just last week, I was in the grocery store, and I was going to be watching the kids for the night, and so I decided, well, I'm going to go to the store and buy snacks, and we're just going to have fun, and we're going to eat bad food together, and that's what we're going to do. It's going to be a part of the fun. So I go, and I've got my basket. I'm walking around, and we're just throwing junk food in the thing. And wouldn't you know it, but I see one of our Bethelites there, uh, someone from the medical profession, no less, <laughs> you know, giving me the raised eyebrow, looking at my basket, and I, uh, I wish I could hide. Or like, you know, for me, if, if I go into the doctor's office, especially if I've got something maybe a little personal that I don't really, you know, care to have everybody know that I'm at the doctor's office for. 
And I, I mean, I would like to go into the doctor's office with like a Halloween mask, you know, and, and not have anybody there know me or greet me by name. I'd, I'd like to be completely autonomous if possible. Or, or if, you know, you get pulled over by the police officer for speeding. <laughs> and they ask, aren't you the pastor at Bethel? <laughs> no, I'm the pastor of Radiant Church. <laughs> I haven't, I haven't done that. <laughs> Not yet anyway. So. Um, there, so there's like, let's say there's about a thousand people that call Bethel their church home. A little bit, it's a little bit less than that. But, uh, and there's a hundred thousand people in, in sort of the region of Fairbanks. So that being the case, statistically, that means that I'm going to be recognized by one out of every hundred people that I run into, Right? And I'm not always crazy about that. And sometimes that just feels like a little bit more than I'm comfortable with. But imagine, and this this is why I bring all of this up, because imagine what it would feel like if half of the people you ran into recognized you. Imagine if it was even worse than that. What if every person that you crossed paths with knew who you were? Imagine that when you show up in a different town, the population of that town swells to two or three times its normal size because you were there. Imagine if all of the people who saw you were constantly trying to get close to you or get something from you or have some kind of personal encounter with you. How would that feel to have that kind of I'll call it celebrity status. And this morning we're taking a look at a point in Jesus' ministry where his popularity has greatly increased. Uh, And the crowds are coming after him almost like the paparazzi. And that's what I've titled the message this morning, Jesus and the Paparazzi. And what we're going to learn here as we look through John chapter 6 is this, that Jesus is not after crowds of fanatics who just want to get something from him that Jesus is after devoted followers who would be willing to give him everything. And that's the, that's the flip or the inversion in this chapter that we're going to see from what might be our expectations that Jesus just wants a huge crowd and instead he wants devoted followers. And so that's what we're going to look at. So the first point I want to put on the screen here and then I'll show it to you in the text is this, that Jesus had attracted a crowd of fans. Look with me in John 6. First six verses. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy food for all these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. All right, so there's crowds coming after Jesus. We see that. One of the reasons the the crowds had been coming is specifically stated for us because he had healed all kinds of diseases. And that's understandable, isn't it? I mean, if a man is walking around, he's performing miracles, and he's healing people from diseases and ailments and lifelong struggles that they had, we would want to see that. And so there's a lot of people that are gathering around simply to see the miracles that he's performing. Some just want to see this display of power. Some want to be healed themselves. They want to be the recipients of that. 
And others saw this, these miracles and this, this kind of healing as a specific sign to authenticate his messianic claim. And then we looked at that a little bit last week, if you remember, that when Jesus healed the paralytic man, that was a specific authentic, authentic what's the word I'm looking for? I can't say it. That's not there. <laughs> it was a specific way to authenticate uh, his claim to be Messiah. And, and, and that came from uh, the passages in Isaiah, Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 29, which I gave you last week. Uh, but once again, Jesus sort of does something that's different here. It's counterintuitive, and he sort of plays hard to get. The crowds come after him, and what does he do? He pushes back. He doesn't accept or receive the applause of sort of a fanatical crowd, but he, he pushes away, and we're told that he retreats to the mountain. Interesting. So then the passage goes on, and I'm not actually going to read the, the bulk of this here, verses 7 through 15. It's, it's the occasion of the feeding of the 5,000. I'm just going to reference it, and you can look at it yourself. Uh, but that's the second thing. So he's got this crowd of people, uh, because he has healed all kinds of sicknesses and the reasons that that brought them forward. And, and then he feeds the 5,000. And what's interesting here, too, is that the Gospel of John doesn't actually tell us the number. You see that in your text? It doesn't actually tell us the number of people that were here. The title of that might tell you, and I would remind you that that's not the inspired scripture. Those are just editorial comments. Um, but what we learn here is that there was, if we compare this chapter with, what, with the occurrence that's recorded in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we learn actually that there was 5,000 men. Not counting women and children. And so very easily, there would be ten to 15,000 people. And maybe even more than that if some of them are as fruitful as you all have been here at Bethel Church. Uh, can you imagine that? 15,000 people. When we go to Herring Auditorium for Easter, you know, the Herring seats about 1,300 when you include the balcony. And we usually have about 1,000 people there. Imagine 15 of those around. And imagine being charged with the task of feeding them all. You know? Randy, I know you try to make a cookie for everybody, but you know, imagine 15,000. And so that's what's in front of Jesus here. And uh, one of the things that's really interesting to me about this miracle, too, is it's the only miracle in the scriptures, or the only, the only miracle of Jesus besides the resurrection that's mentioned in all four Gospels. And I, I think that's significant. I mean, they all... They all comment about it. They all reference it. They all include it in their gospel account. And, and that really gives a lot of evidence to its historical reliability. And, and, uh, and I think it also tells us that there's something significant that happened there, and we should pay attention to it. And we'll get to that more in a little bit later here. So once again, there's this crowd of people. Easily 15,000 people have seen this incredible miracle. You would think this is the time. Right? Jesus, take the applause, take the praise. You've been here to gain a following. You've got it. Run with it, right? And he doesn't. Once again, once again, he pushes back and withdrew to the mountain. Look at verse 14. After the people saw the signs Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. And if you're reading this rightly and you're seeing this kind of repetition and these cycles, you, you kind of are forced to say, what's going on here? 
And, and obviously, somehow, the people and Jesus are a little bit at cross purposes. And it's going to show up here in just a second why that's the case. But we're going to see it one more time here. The third thing that we see, kind of having to do with the crowd, is that he walked on the water. Now, most of the crowd didn't actually witness the act of Jesus walking on the water, right? This was pretty private, pretty localized to his disciples in the boat. But from the perspective of the crowd, they are aware that there was some kind of miraculous crossing. Because Jesus, they didn't see him get into the boat, and he was there on the other side. And they specifically asked, how did this occur? How did you get here? And so this, this act even of getting in the boat and crossing over to the other side of the lake, this seems to be once again another one of those, those situations where Jesus is trying to push back and get away from the crowd. Uh, it's like going up the mountain has not worked, and so now we're going to the other side of the lake. So why is this happening here? Well, I want to show you something first. I want you to see the significance of these miracles. Um, these different miracles that we see, the healing, the feeding, walking on the water, they grab our attention in and of themselves because of the pure demonstration of power, right? If we were there on the scene, they would grab our attention. We would want to look at this. We would want to take this in and observe it. Um, and they grab, certainly grab the attention of the audience of the day. But there's an even greater significance to these miracles in the Jewish minds of those who have observed them. In other words, Jesus isn't just putting on a show. But he is actually recreating miracles from Israel's sacred past. In other words, Jesus is communicating. He's teaching. And he's revealing who he is in light of their expectations. With the feeding of the crowd, that, that provision of bread for such a large, uh, large group of people would absolutely have brought to mind in the Hebrew minds, in, in Israel's mind, manna, right? Manna in the desert that Moses, that they attributed to Moses. And also, the performing of sort of the crossing of the sea here would have reminded them of the crossing of the sea and their escape in the, in the Exodus, right? And so these are, these are specific signs that sort of harken back to miracles of deliverance in Israel's past. Jesus is showing himself to be a new kind of deliverer. He is teaching, he is communicating who he is in light of their need. Not just putting on a show, but showing them what they need. In other words, these are not just abstract demonstrations of power. They're historically significant demonstrations of power. Um, all of these miracles also position Jesus to be a realistic candidate to be the Messiah. And the crowd that sees these things and observes these, they get that. In fact, they were told here in, at the end of this passage in verse 14, after the people saw the signs, the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. And that is a specific a uh, citation from Deuteronomy of something that Moses had said, proclaiming that he would come. So here comes the critical question. Why? Why doesn't Jesus just receive the acclaim? Why doesn't he receive the praise of his fans and just kind of ride off into the messianic sunset? I mean, is he going to get more popular than this? Isn't this what he's after? To gain a crowd of people who are fanatical about him? 
Why didn't he just set up his earthly kingdom right then and there and begin to rule? What's missing here? There is a critical problem, uh, and, and that is this. Even though they may have believed that Jesus was the Messiah or was the prophet that was to come, they misunderstood Messiah. They didn't have a proper understanding of the role of Messiah and what he was coming to do. In other words, they were looking for an earthly king, only an earthly king. They were looking for one who would deliver them from Roman oppression. They were looking for a political leader. They were looking for one who would fill their bellies in order that they might minimize their labor. They were looking for one who would simply heal their bodies. In short, they were looking for one who would save them from earthly ills, but they failed to see the Messiah as a savior for sin. They failed to see in Messiah the offer of eternal life. They failed to see their need for forgiveness from sin. They failed to see their need to be reconciled to God through an appropriate sacrifice. In other words, their expectation of Messiah was too small. And similarly, their dedication to Messiah was too small. And it was for this reason that Jesus resisted their early interests so that he might teach them about their real need and put the real issues on the front burner. And so retreating to the mountains twice and crossing to the other side of the lake were all so that he might continue to teach them about what they really needed in Messiah. And he goes on and he starts putting words to this kind of thing. So Jesus actually confronts the crowd of fans. Uh, again, it seems that Jesus is not just trying to get people to follow him under, uh, under any banner, but rather he's trying to get them to follow him for the right reasons. And so he actually begins to, and this is kind of hard to say, but he begins to thin out the herd. He begins to thin out the herd. He first of all confronts them. You know, if you're trying to gain a popular following, this is not a good way to start confronting people. But this is what he does. He confronts their motives specifically. Look at verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and you had your fill. You're after me, Because of what you think you can get from me. You're after me because you just want a free lunch. Now I think it's easy for us to kind of sit here in 2014 as well-fed individuals in Bethel Church and maybe be critical of sort of their small and erroneous view of Messiah, but uh, I'm going to try to confront you (laughs) this morning and bring the lessons they learned to bear in our lives. Let me just make a couple of unpopular statements, I guess. Jesus did not come to make our lives a little bit better. Jesus did not come to make peaceful nations on earth. Jesus did not come to bless you with all your earthly wants. Jesus did not come to guarantee that you would have a harmonious family. Jesus did not come to protect you from all harms. Jesus did not come to make you prosperous. I'm going to say that one twice because it's so often abused. Jesus did not come to make you prosperous. 
And the reality is this, that Jesus will not accept the role of an accessory to an already self-centered life. He will not do that. He is not a religious trinket, and he will not be used to do our bidding. He came to be that which he is. He is the transcendent God of the universe. He is Lord of all. He is the Lamb on whom the wrath of God was laid. He is the only appropriate and sufficient sacrifice for your sin and mine. He is the Son of God, our Savior. He came to rescue us not from the petty difficulties of daily life, but from the crushing guilt of sin. That is what Messiah came to do. And so before he begins to give them the truth about who he is, he's, he's going to continue to root out their false understanding and their false expectation. He's going to confront it, and if it means thinning out the herd, it means thinning out the herd. And so the second thing he does after he's questioned their motives, now he sort of questions their work. Whew. Talk about getting to a man's pride here. Verse 27. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must me do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this. Ready? Roll up your sleeves. Here we go. Believe in the one he sent. So they asked him, oh, what sign will you do to give give that we might see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, is it, <laughs> it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. This is like having a conversation with your kids. You know what I mean? Do you know what? Can I have a snack? We just... We just ate. We just ate. I know, but I'm still hungry. But you didn't even finish what you had, right? This is right after the feeding of the 5,000 where they had what? Leftovers. And, and they're asking for a sign to authenticate what he's saying here. They say, well, actually, Moses, he produced, he produced bread in the wilderness, So, you know, maybe you could do something like that. And I don't know how Jesus doesn't just go, you know, did you just see what happened here? What he's doing in this teaching here is he's he's confronting their preoccupation with the material world. And he is trying to steadily, steadily lift their gaze from the temporal, from the physical, from the material desires so that they would begin to see their spiritual need. They don't need one who can just give them food when they're hungry. They need something much more than that. Unfortunately, the expectation of Messiah for most had been reduced to one who would just simply be a better manager of the material world. Jesus came to give us entrance into the kingdom of God. And so the early fans of Christ were hoping that Messiah would sort of just provide for their physical needs. And Jesus is continuing to teach them that he was the provision for their spiritual need. And again, Jesus is not after crowds of fanatics that will come to him for any reason. But he is after devoted followers. He is after those who will take him as he is. For those who will accept him into their life. 
as he, as he needs to be. And I, I love this comment that he says. The work of God is what? It's not to earn, it's to believe. Every religion on earth, um, with the exception of Christianity, has in some part an aspect of works. Christianity is based upon the cross of Christ and it's based upon forgiveness, which comes through belief in Jesus. And so he sort of turns their request into um, a sign or an illustration and kind of an object lesson. In other words, he sort of, he decides, all right, I'm going to take this conversation about bread and snacks and signs and all this kind of stuff, and I'm, I'm going to teach you with it. And so he illustrates their need. Look at verse 35. And Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of those he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. I want to look at this, this, this statement here. I am the bread of life. Now, I would have asked my my wife loves making bread, and she's really good at it. It's delicious. And I complain because it's healthy, and secretly I like it. Don't tell her that. She's gone. Uh, she and Aiden are out of town right now. And I would have asked her to make some bread for me this morning, but since she was gone, Lulu's has uh, supplied us. So, well, I bought it. That's not, I don't want to give them more credit than they deserve. But, um, but isn't that beautiful? I mean, that looks tasty, doesn't it? And... I don't know if the front row, I can smell it right here. It's fantastic. And I want you just to kind of look at this as I talk about this statement that Jesus makes here. He says, I am the bread of life. Uh, we're going to get into this more and more. This begins the first of, of the seven of the I am statements that we find in the Gospel of John. And like I said, we'll unpack these more and more. But particularly in the construction of this statement, Jesus, when he says the I am I want to tell you that everybody's ears were pricked and their eyes were open and their hearts were on the edge of their seats when he said, I am. Because it's a specific reference to the way that God, Yahweh, revealed himself in the Old Testament in the deliverance of Exodus. Remember? Moses said, who shall I tell them sent me? And God said, tell them, I am. Right? The self-sustaining one. The self-sufficient one. The one who needs no one. That's who you tell them is rescuing them. So when Jesus says, I am, there's a flinch factor here. And he says, I am the bread of life. And so he's pulling together two essential parts of his nature, his deity, and yet then he's also showing a part of function, something that he provides, the bread of life. The bread of life. What does this mean that he is the bread of life? It means that he is the gift of God. That's what they would have understood from the manna being delivered in the wilderness, that he comes from God. And in the I am statement that he is God. So they would understand that he is a gift. And bread is just the basic and essential element of, of life. It's a picture of our basic needs, right? Our daily bread, our basic sustenance, our basic nourishment. So he is the gift of God and he is the basic necessity that we all need from him. So that's the second part of it. And the third part, and Jesus talks a lot about this, but he, it is... 
He is something that we need to take into ourselves. We have to appropriate him into our life. We have to ingest Jesus, if I can say it that way. This becomes a difficulty for those that are hearing it. Because he says, I am the bread of life. And he, he goes on to say, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. If you look at the text there, those are some hard words. Uh, I, I suspect that if I began to teach about cannibalism and it's, uh, how good it is, you all would have difficulties with that and would be fleeing for the door. Jesus' statements here are not easy. He doesn't bring them down and make them real accessible. He consistently raises the bar and makes people sort of reach for them in a sense. And, and what we actually see him doing in this, in this, as he illustrates their need, is he presses them to the point of discomfort. And we actually see them grumbling in two different ways. First of all, they grumble. Uh, it says that they grumble once because he claimed to be the bread from heaven. And the discussion simply becomes, wait a minute. Isn't this Joseph and Mary's kid? Isn't this that little boy from Nazareth? You know, I'm, I'm not trying to be disrespectful, but that's their thoughts, right? Isn't it? How does he claim to be from heaven? He's from Nazareth, you know, or in Alaska. He's from Ninana. <laughs> What's so special about this kid? And they also grumble because he said they needed his flesh and his blood, and they don't understand that. And both of these statements sort of interestingly kind of harken back to the grumbling of Israel, right, in the desert. We can sort of hear that echo here. And I think we can see that it is human nature to want and to need and to recognize that we need to be rescued, but then to grumble about the means that the Lord provides. Jesus could never be accused here of bait and switch or uh, soft selling the gospel. He tells them the blunt and the honest truth that he, he didn't just simply come to make our earthly lives a little bit better, but he came to save us from our sin. He came to be the gift of God, that basic essence of life that we need, such as our daily bread. And he came to be the provision for our sins if we would take him into ourself. And that's what he's teaching with the bread here. So the conclusion that I sort of come to about all of this is this, that Jesus really wasn't after crowds of fans. If he wanted big crowds of fans, he had it long ago. But he sort of pushed back on that and he kept teaching, and he kept speaking the truth, and he kept raising the bar, and he shows us in doing that that he is after fully devoted followers of him. People who are not trying to get a little something, a little blessing from God, but those who are willing to give them their whole selves to Jesus Christ, to the one whom they need. Look at this in verse 66. It says, From this time many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. And then Jesus turns to his disciples. He asks this question. You do not want to leave too, Jesus asked the 12. Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. I love that verse. You get the sense. Peter doesn't say, well, Jesus, we totally understood what you were talking about. Absolutely got it. This is a very clear statement that you've said. I have the sense that there was a whole lot of unknown and a whole lot of questions for the disciples, and yet Peter makes this bold declaration, to whom shall we go? In a sense, there's lots we don't know, but we know enough. You have the words of eternal life. 
We're going to stick with you and we're going to figure this out. And Jesus kind of reminds them of a couple of things here. First of all, he reminds them, and I'm, I'm not gonna, I don't have time to unpack all of this, but he reminds them that they had been chosen. No one can come to the Father unless he has enabled them. And he encouraged them throughout this teaching that those who had been called would be kept. Those who had been called would be kept. Now I want to ask a series of questions to kind of bring this to bear in your life too. What is your motivation for coming to Christ? Are you just junkies for the blessings of God? Uh, Or are you drawn to him to worship him and for the adoration of the Savior? Are you working for food that spoils? Or are you being nourished with the real food and the substance of the Savior himself? Are you working to earn some kind of place or good status with the Lord? Or are you doing the, the work that really isn't work to believe? Are you dismissive about the importance of Christ in your life? Or are you regularly and steadily taking Christ into yourself so that increasingly his character and his nature are being formed in you? In other words, the, sort of the distillation of this passage that Jesus is getting at is this. You need to believe in me. That's the work of God. Not for personal enrichment, but for the salvation of your souls. I'm the gift of heaven. I've not come to accessorize your life. I've come to give you life. Life that is really life. I want to challenge you with three habits this summer, Bethel. Uh, I remember Pastor Paul Holmes, a number of years ago, for those of you who got the Senator's teaching, began a summer with a phrase called summer doctrine. And I loved that phrase. I thought it was great. Just kind of, how do I approach the summer? What am I after? What are my goals? And I think it's such a different season for all of us that it's easy to let go of some things that we need to let go of, but it's easy to let go of some things that we don't need to be letting go of. And so I want to challenge you with a couple of disciplines. The first isn't a discipline or a habit at all. It's simply this. Do you believe? Have you done the work of God, which is to believe in the one that he has sent? If not, I want to challenge you to make that decision for Christ. Secondly, the the next three things that I would give you in terms of habits is to maintain the habit of worship through the summer especially. Maintain the habit of worship. And and by that, I don't just mean coming here on Sundays, although that's a good thing. Um, There's a lot of great ways to worship the Lord in the summertime. It might be with a fishing pole in your hand. It might be hiking a beautiful ridge. It might be on a four-wheeler chasing some critter. But what you do this summer as you engage in the natural world, do it as an act of worship. Maintain that habit. I want to challenge you to maintain your, the habit of your devotion. And there's lots of different ways. I'm not saying that's got to look like reading your Bible every morning, followed by five minutes of prayer, followed by, you know, it doesn't have to be a regime. But I would tell you this. Make sure that your heart is devoted to the Lord. Make sure you're spending some time in his word and some time in prayer. Figure out what works for you and keep your heart of devotion through the summer. And thirdly, and this may be the most challenging, maintain the habit of community. God has not made you to live in isolation. He's made you to live within the body of Christ to both give and receive. Maintain a habit of community. Let's pray. Father, we don't want to just be excitable fans on weekends.
but we want to be devoted followers of Jesus. We understand that you didn't come to just accessorize our life, but you came to give us the life that is truly life. Jesus, we recognize that you are the bread of heaven, the gift of God, the nourishment for our souls, and we must take you into ourselves. So help us to be faithful followers of yours, those who are devoted to you, those who practice habits, so that we will continually take you into ourselves and understand you more and more. And Lord, I know that as we understand our need for you more and more, the heart of worship grows. And may that be true in our lives. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.